Hello and welcome to Connections, the new podcast brought to you by the Young Musicians Foundation. Each episode will feature an accomplished and successful musical artist. Rather than just ask a series of stock questions about their accomplishments and their life stories, we'll explore their beliefs, their philosophies, and the perspectives and the insights that are the true basis of a rewarding and successful life as a musician. So if you're interested in pursuing a career in music, or interested in the history of film, television, recording, or are fascinated by the stories of artists who have reached the height of their professions, Connections is the podcast for you. We have a very special guest with us today on this episode of Connections, Mr. Mike Stoller. Mike, along with his writing partner, Jerry Lieber, literally changed the course of modern musical history. Mike and Jerry's deep love of the blues as teenagers, which was virtually unheard of in segregated America, influenced and informed such hits as Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock, Love Me, and Loving You, all made famous by Elvis Presley. They were also known as tremendous collaborators. They've worked on songs such as On Broadway, which was written with Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel, Stand By Me, which they wrote with Ben E. King, and Youngblood, written with the legendary Doc Pomus. In all, Lieber and Stoller wrote or co-wrote over 70 chart hits. They were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1985 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1987. Now, Mike was so generous and shared so many interesting stories, insights, and perspectives from his legendary career throughout the course of this interview. We're going to actually break this program up into two segments. This will be part one, and we'll be releasing part two within a week or two. We are uh, here in the studio with Mr. Mike Stoller. Welcome to Connections. Hi, happy to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm, uh, I'm a little bit in awe. It's very few, I've had very few occasions to be able to speak with somebody who we can literally say changed the course of music. And the name of the show is Connections. And so what we try to do really is to find connections between things, connections that most people don't often make, but creative people always intuitively do. We're going to explore some of that as we go on. But first, Mike, if it's okay, I'd like to talk about, about your musical education. Um, I understand you grew up in Los Angeles? No, actually, I grew up in New York till I was 16. I moved to Los Angeles in 1949 when I was 16. And my early music education, which was very sporadic, my aunt, who was uh, like a concert pianist, but a bit of a recluse, started to teach me the piano when I was five, but she slapped my hands when they weren't curved properly, and uh, I quit. (laughs) Boy, I've heard that story uh, more than once or twice. I don't know why people thought that was a way to teach music. I don't know. I guess it was the way she learned. At any rate, uh, then I I did take lessons from time to time from uh, an itinerant piano teacher who went door to door in our neighborhood in Sunnyside in Queens in New York. But I preferred most of the time to play stickball in the street. I did go to 
camp, summer camp, an interracial summer camp back in the 40s, starting in 1940. And I heard a teenager, a black teenager, playing boogie-woogie on a upright piano in, in the barn that was our recreation hall. Uh, he thought he was alone, but I was in a corner watching his every move, and I was just mesmerized by what I heard. And when he left, I tried to make my fingers do what I'd seen his fingers doing. And I guess I got to be fairly good. Did he teach you, or you just uh, by ear, a combination of both? Well, ear and watching his fingers. So a neighbor heard me playing. He introduced me to James P. Johnson, who he happened to know. I took about five or six lessons from James B. Johnson. It was a long trip on multiple buses and or subway, whatever, from where I lived in uh, Sunnyside to where he lived in uh, Jamaica, which was part of Queens as well. Right. And what he really taught me was the structure of the blues, the 12-bar structure, and a few other things. Unfortunately, I didn't really, I knew he was Fats Waller's mentor, but I didn't know about his compositions, which I learned about years later. So all I wanted to know at that point was Boogie Boogie. What other kind of music were you listening to at the time? Well, my mother had WQXR, which is the classical music station in New York, she had it on all day long. And that's what I heard. And other than that, I then went and bought Boogie Woogie records by Albert Ammons and Mead Lux Lewis and Pinetop Smith. Those were the things that I wanted to hear. A few years later, I got interested a little broader interest in uh, jazz in first Dixieland, uh, you know, Louis Armstrong and Jack Teagarden and a whole bunch of other players. And then uh, one day we were at summer camp and a buddy of mine had a wind-up Victrola and we, we went out, we were out in the woods and listening and he had some records that were given to him, and he put on a record by Charlie Parker. And I went insane for Charlie Parker. So then I became very interested, and by this time, I was 13 or 14 years old and started hanging out on weekends on 52nd Street, New York, where they had all these jazz clubs. and. Um, as it happened, I guess if I would say in my deepest voice, I'll have a beer. And, you know, they would serve me, and I was okay to go into those clubs and hear Charlie Parker and Miles Davis. So you saw Charlie Parker, you saw Miles Davis at the time? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and Dexter Gordon and Lucky Thompson and 
mixed and along with that uh, sometimes there would be a boogie woogie piano player like Meadlux Lewis and across the street at uh, the Onyx Club would be Errol Garner in fact I remember seeing George Shearing playing with Lucky Thompson at the Three Deuces that was my interest and I started to play a little bit, you know, in that style as as best I could. And I would say it wasn't too good. And, um, but it's what I wanted to be, was a jazz musician. But what an education, I mean, to be able to go and see these people. Well, yeah, looking back, it was, it was great. And these people have become even more iconic and more famous than they were at that time when you could see them for the price of a beer. Anyway, I saw an awful lot of people, a lot of performers. I saw Thelonious Monk and uh, Tad Dameron with their bands with all the sidemen that they had. and It was great. It, you know, I really loved it. When I was 16, my folks moved with me to Los Angeles. It was a supposed business opportunity for my dad, and uh, it didn't work out that well. When I got here, I kind of realized that I just wasn't going to be a jazz musician. I wasn't good enough to, you know, to enjoy it. And I started to study composition with a guy, uh, privately, with a guy uh, named, a man named Arthur Lang, who was a famed orchestrator, uh, who worked on a lot of films, some which he was credited on and many uncredited. And I started to write uh, some pieces of music. In Los Angeles, it was recommended that I should meet Arthur Lang. While I was studying with Arthur Lang, which I, I started like probably around January of 1950, and I started to write some pieces of music. I got interesting comments, you know, from him, very helpful. I then, uh, of all things, I got a, well, I was going to Los Angeles City College at that time. A friend of mine was a pretty good pianist, and he had a job that paid $3, a Sunday afternoon dance, and he got a gig that paid $5. So he gave me the $3 job, which was a pickup bands. I don't think anybody knew anybody. And I went out to East L.A., and I played, you know, it was a few standards and some blues. On a break, I was just noodling at the piano, and the drummer said to me, what's that you're playing? And I kind of said, well, oh, it's something I'm working on, which I wasn't, but at any rate, he took my, uh, my name and my phone number, and I thought I was gonna get some more $3 jobs, and I was very happy about that prospect. As it turned out, 
The drummer was at Fairfax High School. He was friendly with Jerry Lieber. What he did was he, Jerry was trying to get him to write songs with him. Told he needed to find somebody who could write notes on paper and put the words underneath the notes. This fellow, the drummer, whose name I can't exactly recall, told Jerry, why don't you call this guy? He's very good. <laughs> and he called me. He said, is this Mike Stoller? And did you play a dance in East L.A.? I said, yes. He said, uh, you play the piano, right? I said, yes. He said, you, you can write notes on paper? I said, yes. He said, well, my name is Jerome Lieber, and I write lyrics. If that moment could have been framed in time right there, that very moment when Jerry Lieber called Mike Stoller on the phone and asked him if that was the piano, if you were the piano player that played in East L.A., my gosh. Well, he said, my name is Jerome Lieber, and I write lyrics. How would you like to write songs with me? And I said, nope. And he said, well, why not? I said, I don't like songs. At least what I meant was the songs I thought Jerome Lieber would be writing. And he said, well, what do you like? So I was being somewhat truthful and somewhat pretentious. I said, oh, I like Bartok, Stravinsky, Thelonious Monk, and Charlie Parker. And he said, well, nevertheless, I think we ought to meet to discuss it. I said, you want to come over? Come over. And uh, in my memory, and I'm sure this is not quite possible, in my memory, I was hanging up the phone when the doorbell rang. There was Jerry Lieber. I was very rude, uh, unintentionally, because I stood there staring at him because he has one blue eye and one brown eye. And I'd never seen that before. And I kind of forgot to ask him to come in. <laughs> My mother, who was the other room in the kitchen, I think, at the time, said, Mike, aren't you going to invite your friend in? So, of course, he came in, and I was being a bit aggressive, more aggressive than I normally am, and I saw he had a notebook, and I said, are those... Are your words in there, your lyrics? He said, yes. I said, well, let me see them. And I looked at them, and I said, oh, these are blues. Because he had a line of lyric, a line of ditto marks, and then a rhyming line. And also, the subject matter uh, was very much like the blues I'd been listening to on what I thought was the B-side of a record where there was an instrumental, a boogie-woogie instrumental on one side. Of course, that was the A side of the record. <laughs> I said to him, oh, I like the blues. I didn't know that you would be writing the blues. So I went to the piano and started jamming some 12-bar blues, and he started singing along as if he'd been raised in Mississippi. We shook hands and said, we'll be partners. And we were for 61 years. And how old were you when, you when this moment happened? Well, we were both 17. Oh, my goodness. Wow. 
And you met here, he was at Fairfax, and you were already at LA City College. Yeah. And a lot of the folks that we've interviewed so far in this program, to get that start into the professional career, the career arc that I've heard to date is that, you know, the, a lot of practicing, but the teacher sort of helps bridge that gap between, you know, the student life and the professional life. It sounds to me that you were always driven, self-motivated, self-driven, had some instruction early on, but this was entirely your own initiative. Well, actually, I think it was more Jerry's initiative. But to get yourself to the point to meet Jerry, <laughs> that's... Well, yeah. that was because I wanted to make $3, which I could sorely use at that point. At any rate, uh, we both loved blues. Now, of course, we'd also, both of us, been listening to all kinds of other music, you know, what we call now the Great American Songbook, and French Impressionists, you know, Debussy and Ravel, but we were basically driven by the idea of writing the blues. Fortunately, in the first year that we met, in 1950, we had our first song recorded by Jimmy Witherspoon. And we had met, Jerry had met, Jerry worked after school at a record store on Fairfax Avenue. A fellow named Lester Sill was a sales manager for a record company called Modern Records, which was basically a rhythm and blues record company, right. primarily. Um, they had early B.B. King records and a, a lot of stuff. You hear the stories of, like, the Beatles. Well, the Beatles a little bit, but the Stones and that whole British invasion and these guys discovering the blues. This was a full 15, 20 years after... You and Jerry, from what I understand of music history, you guys were really kind of on the outer edge there with your interest in that sort of music. Um, that's real pioneering, edgy stuff, I think. Well, I, I really can't say because we were not thinking about um, anything but wanting to write blues that blues singers would perform. It made us feel great if they would because it felt like we had achieved something and and that was where all of our energies went and all of our thoughts and we you know we wanted to be black and we did and and we wanted to live a black lifestyle of course we were still living at home so it made it a little bit different but we hung out with Black Crowd and we spent time writing songs and playing for different people and we got a reputation among some of the little record companies and there were many little R&B record companies in Los Angeles at the time, or in and around. Yeah. I remember Lester Sill had set up an appointment for us at Modern Records, which will happen to be in Beverly Hills. Primarily, it was that label that had B.B. King, it also had Hatta Brooks, it had a lot of uh, blues singers. And when they were 20 minutes late for our appointment, I said, let's get out of here, that's terrible. 
because I was nervous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I used that as an excuse to get out of there. So we walked up the street and I was talking about how, how rude they were. And we saw a sign, Aladdin Records, on the other side of the street. So we went in there and they wanted to know what we wanted. And Jerry said, we're songwriters and we're here to play you some songs. And as luck would have it, Maxwell Davis, who was a wonderful musician and in effect a record producer before that term was ever used, was sitting there and he said, well, let me hear those songs. We went in the back and played them. Uh, I played, Jerry sang, and we walked out with songwriter contracts and we felt we had conquered the world. Those songs were never recorded, but it made us feel like we were professionals. But little by little, the different record companies heard about us, some through Lester Sill talking to them, and we would get calls to write songs in, in this fashion. We would get a call and say, come to the studio and bring songs. There's a record date going on. Uh, Little Esther, you know, with Johnny Otis's band, and uh, bring songs. And we would teach the song to Little Esther or, and or whomever was there at the time. And uh, Johnny would do, you know, Johnny's band would do a head arrangement uh, in no time. Then we'd go out in the hall. If we'd written three songs, we'd go out in the hall between takes and write another song. You know, little by little, we built a reputation mm -hmm. that we could write songs that blues singers could sing. Yeah. And then we were asked to write a song for Little Willie Littlefield, and the owner of the record company, a fellow named Ralph Bass, said, you know what, write a song about Kansas City. Well, so we did. We had never been to Kansas City. But, you know, we knew from reading about it, we knew that Charlie Parker started there, uh, Jay McShann, a lot of other people right. had blues singers that started there or been important there, like Big Joe Turner and so on. And so we wrote, and we asked about uh, some of the musicians who uh, we worked with who had been performing and all over the country and, right. and they told us street names and so on. So we wrote the song Kansas City. We taught the song to Little Willie at Maxwell Davis's home. We made the record and, and we were very content with it. But the guy who owned the record company said, you know what, you know what's really hip? KC. So even though the song was already performed exactly as we'd written it. We called it Kansas City. Right. He called it KC Lovin'. It sold some records in around LA and San Francisco, but then it kind of disappeared for seven years yeah. until the guy remembered it and recorded it with the proper title, Kansas City, and it 
became a number one pop record as yeah. well as a number one blues record. There are probably three or four hundred different recordings of it by yeah. now. I mean, I just have to, again, just stop for a moment and remark at just how amazing this was, that a couple of white guys, young guys, with a love for the blues and a feel for the blues, went out and started writing for essentially your heroes? Would, I, would that be incorrect to say that? No, you were correct. Charles Brown and That's Amos true. Milburn and Jimmy Witherspoon. Yeah. They, they were our heroes. And this was a time when if a, either a mixed, I'll have to say a mixed race band, African Americans and, and, and whites, if they were touring, the African Americans had to go in a different entrance of the hotel. That was, uh, yeah, well, that was very much the case, I guess, with Johnny Otis. Johnny was, everybody thought he was black. He was deemed to be black. He lived a black lifestyle. His wife was black, and his children were mixed race, of mm -hmm. course. But his whole band was black. But I think he ended up staying in the hotels, the black hotels. And they accepted him being a very light-skinned black man. He happened to be Greek, and he was very fair-skinned. I, I always assumed he was African-American. No, no. He, he was, uh, his real name was uh, John Veliotis. At any rate, later that year, John Johnny called me. He said, are you familiar with Willie Mae Thornton? Mm -hmm. And I said, no. He said, well, listen, I got to run a record date for her for Peacock Records, you know, they're down in, in uh, Texas, down in Houston, Texas. I'm going to be rehearsing her and so on. We got to do a record date, so you better get Jerry and come over my house. And so I called Jerry and I said, get over here and I'll drive us down. I had a car. He didn't. Uh, at a 37 Plymouth. And we drove over to Johnny's, which wasn't actually that far away from where I was living at the time. And we were introduced to Big Mama Thornton. About 300 pounds, mm -hmm. 250 to 300 pounds. Very tough looking. Seemingly unapproachable. And then Johnny ran over because she didn't really want to meet us and said, Mama, you want a hit, don't you? These boys write hits, which was a little bit of an exaggeration at that point. At any rate, we, she sang and we, she knocked us out and we went back to my house and uh, wrote hound dog in about 10 or 15 minutes. I didn't even sit down. I was playing the piano standing up and Jerry was shouting out words and then he said, I don't know hound dog. I don't know if that's going to make it. You know, he's thought of something much cruiser uh, because it was you ain't nothing but. And I said, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to play. I like Hound Dog. He said, you like it? Okay. So we went back, played the song for her. We recorded it yep. the next day. Wow. And uh, Jerry and I had a little to do between ourselves because we said she ought to growl it. And 
it was like, yeah, but who's going to tell her, you or me? <laughs> because she was formidable and uh, anyway, we mentioned it and it was like, don't be telling me how to sing the blues. It was kind of like, white boy, don't be telling me how to sing the blues. Nevertheless, she growled the first take, which was great, and then she growled the second take, which was even better, and that was it. Now, everybody listening knows who else recorded that song, but legend has it, I read that the Big Mama Thornton was actually your favorite performance of that song. Oh, yeah, because it was the intent of the song. Right. I mean, the, just the first verse, for example, was, you ain't nothing but a hound dog, quit snooping around my door. You can wag your tail, but I ain't gonna feed you no more. And she was singing to a man. The later version seemed to be singing to a dog. Now, a lot of things in my life, and I guess in Jerry's as well, happened by accident, seemingly, and fortuitously. Jerry and I wrote a song for some white kids that we had, somebody called us and said they want to write, you know, they want to sing uh, your kind of song. We wrote some songs for them, and one of them became an enormous hit called Black Denim Trousers and Motorcycle Boots. And I got a check that I'd never seen such a check before. It was $5,000. And I'd always wanted to go to Europe. Right. I had married a short time before. I was very young. What little possessions we had, we put in storage and just went to Europe. Not to travel, but you just went to Europe. Yeah, to see it. Before we left, as a matter of fact, we had booked our air tickets and going to rent cars, and uh, at least one. And I went to the automobile club because I was told that gasoline was very expensive in Europe, uh, but that if you bought coupons, you could use those in Europe and they would accept them and it would be much cheaper. Just before I went there, I had, through a travel agent that I spoke to, booked a ship coming back, a Greek ship called the Olympic, and to come back from Naples, because we started up in Northern Europe, uh, in Copenhagen, and then Amsterdam, and Belgium, to Paris, and then to London, and then everywhere, you know. It was a three-month trip because $5,000 in the dollar was very valuable in Europe. That was just a few years after the war. It was 1956. Yeah, about 10 years? Yeah, and then we went to Wales and Ireland and back to London and back to Paris and drove through France for a month, uh, Florence and Perugia and Rome, and finally to Naples. But when I had gone to the to get the coupons, to buy coupons for gas in L.A. before we went to Europe, I told them I was coming back on the Olympic. And they said, we can get you on the Andrea Doria. It's a fabulous ship. Believe me, take it. So I, I spoke to the 
travel agent who had arranged the Greek ship. He said, you can get on there, forget about it, take it. It's a fabulous ship, you'll never forget it. And of course, I've never forgotten. Now, on the way back, of course, very close to our destination, but not there yet, there was a collision between a Swedish ship, the Stockholm, and the Andrea Doria, which ultimately sank. That's one of the all-time famous wrecks. And we got off down, finally, not knowing that we could get off uh, after hanging on to a rail for three or four hours. We came down a, a, a Jacob's Ladder, which was swinging over a broken lifeboat. There was, at that point, a ship standing by, a beautiful ship, and it was all lit up, said Ile de France. But we couldn't go there because our lifeboat had a broken rudder. We could move it, but we couldn't direct it. And finally, we were picked up by a, another ship, a freighter that was standing by, called the Cape Ann, from which I was able, with cash, I had a few lira left, that was the money of Italy at the time, I paid to have a wire sent to Atlantic Records, because I was planning to meet Jerry in New York. He was coming from L.A. and I was coming from Italy and we were going to meet up there and uh, I'm okay and please let my father know yeah. and my sister that I'm alive. Oh my goodness. Uh, we came in finally into the dock in New York and Jerry ran up to me and said, Mike, we got a smash hit. Oh my, that's what he said. <laughs> He just almost went down in his ship, but that's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you're kidding. He said, no, hound dog. I said, Big Mama Thornton? He said, no, some white kid named Elvis Presley. And that's where we're going to leave it for part one of our uh, interview with Mr. Mike Stoller. Please check back with us in a week or two for part two where Mike is going to go uh, much more deeply into his uh, amazing career and the people he's met along the way. You've been listening to Connections, produced by the Young Musicians Foundation. Our theme music was composed by Bruce Broughton. For more information on the Young Musicians Foundation, please contact our website, ymf.org. My name is Walter Zoy, and we'll see you next time.